Good morning. Let's come back together, find our seats as we jump into Acts 21 together. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving with the appropriate level of excitement. You know, the Thanksgiving and, and gatherings can bring all kinds of good excitement and challenging excitement. You never know. Uh, I, I just picture... I just picture setting up for a great Thanksgiving meal and everything's set and you have the, the turkey in the oven and people are coming over and it's, it's a time of joy and it's a time of celebrating what God has done and being thankful and then it's time for the meal and you go and you pull open the oven and all this smoke just starts pouring out and you realize your oven is off by 100 degrees and it's been cooking at 450 instead of 350 for 12 hours and... Um, and suddenly your beautiful day is ruined. Now that's a silly example, right? The smoke could be fun, but that, that's just a, a, a silly example. But there's times where we're sitting around the table and everyone's like, what are you thankful for? And then all of a sudden brings up, someone brings up politics. And, and you know what happens in, a, in an extended family of politics, right? Someone brings that up and either the room goes quiet because no one can stop looking at the disaster that's about to take place. Or you have all the rescuers that start coming and say, hey, how about that weather today? Hey, when are you putting up your Christmas? You know, right? So, so one of those two things happen. Or we have a great Thanksgiving and we are excited and then Black Friday comes the next day. And there's running and screaming and eating of people and, um, okay, that's Jurassic Park, but close enough. Um, and, and so we have all these hopes of, of, Good things that are going to happen and thankful things that are going to happen. And we can be excited about what God is doing. And, and we can be on these, these emotional highs in some ways or these exciting times. And it seems like in this fallen world, they always turn or they can turn. And, and these good times can turn into something that is difficult. We come today to, you're probably wondering, what does it have to do with Paul in Jerusalem? We come today to Paul in Jerusalem. And Paul is going to see the church at Jerusalem. He's going to report what God has done. And there's a level of excitement on this third missionary journey of just how many people have come to Christ. But what has happened along the way? The last two Sundays that we've talked, there's been warning. You're going to be bound. You're going to be in chains. There's been this... Sorry, I haven't been able to clear a phlegm this morning. Um... Or you try to preach and then you have phlegm. Um, <laughs> there's, um, there's been this idea that this would be the last time these people would ever see Paul. And so there's this warning and this dread of what is going to happen. At the same time, this is an exciting time where Paul is reporting to the church. He's also bringing a delegation with an offering for the church to help in time of need and to help with some of the needs that are happening there. And so it's a really interesting place that we come to today's text because we've had the foreshadowing, we've had the warning, but we don't know what's going to happen yet. Now, a lot of you have read Acts before, so you actually do know. Just ignore that this morning. Read it like it's the first time, like Luke is writing it. And you're like, what's going to happen to Paul today? Because we ended last week that he showed up in Jerusalem and the story ended. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. In Acts chapter 21, verse 17. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. And I want to look at the story of what what is happening to Paul, but also think through our lives when we have times where we have seen God work and we're excited and we're in ministry for him 
and then challenges come our way that threaten to derail that, that threaten to stop that. How do we handle those things? And we get a little bit today, but next week we'll get a little bit more of how Paul handled that. So Acts chapter 21, verse 17 to 36. And if I had to summarize today's text, in an effort to stop God's work, Satan will attack when we are doing God's work, but God is still at work. Make sense? Let me read it again. In an effort to stop God's work, Satan will attack when we are doing God's work, but God is still at work. And so we come to um, the first little mini section, 17 through the first part of verse 20. And, and point number one is when we share what God is doing, we help others praise God. And so we start on a high note. We start with Paul sharing what God is doing, and we see the value of that. And I think this is so appropriate at Thanksgiving to think through what is God doing? Where have we seen him show up? Let me start reading at verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. These are great three verses to start this section, to start his time in Jerusalem. And so it says they'd come to Jerusalem. And and the first thing he talks about is just how the church received him. The brothers received us gladly. And the idea here is they were happy to see us, but they welcomed us and they showed hospitality. It's like when you go somewhere to people you haven't seen in a while, you can tell when they're happy to see you, and you can tell when they're tolerating you. <laughs> and, and in this case, Paul's like, they welcomed us gladly. They were excited to see us. They threw open the doors. And I, I think e- even in that, there's a great example to the church of how we to receive each other, how we are to receive each other. We are to show hospitality. We are to show that care and that love. We should look forward to getting together, to, to joining in worship and song together. So they received them gladly. On the following day, and so you get that he shows up and he's mingling with people. Everyone's received him. They have a great, great place of hospitality, maybe some meals with people. The next day, Paul went in with us to James and the elders were present and all the elders were present. And it looks as if at this point the church has solidified leadership around James, the brother of Christ, and the elders. And so these are the ones that are leading the church in Jerusalem, which was the, like we call some of the the major churches here, the mothership of of, a variety of Christian churches. And so this is the, the main church and the hub of what is happening. And so Paul goes into them, and after greeting them in verse 19, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That would have been just such a fun meeting to be part of, a fun gathering to be part of. Because it, it, the one by one means he was giving specifics. He was being detailed. It wasn't just, hey, God did some great things. Hey, let's go on. Let's move on. No, he is going probably city by city where he went. And some of the converts, some of the people that had come to Christ, the church that was founded, and he's talking about the Ephesian elders and all these great things that God had done. And, and one of the interesting things is, is that he credited God. You see his humility even right here. He's detailed in how he shares it. He's relating specific things. But always these are things God had done. Not that he had done, 
not look at me, but look at God. And so he's always in his thanksgiving pointing to God, which is a great way for us to think of thanksgiving and praise. Always point it back to God. What has God done? How has God shown up? Rather than, hey, I'm thankful I did this, or I'm thankful I did that. But pointing back to God. This also is so significant in Acts, because if you remember Acts 1.8, we had the summary of the whole book, right? And that um, the ministry was to start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Paul here is back in Jerusalem, sharing how the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. This is just an amazing, amazing time of thanksgiving and praise to God. Their response in verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God. And and the wording there is that they praised God. They they were exuberant in, in pointing to God and praising God. And so the stories of how God worked resulted in others coming alongside and praising God in their faith growing, in their worship growing. And that's the way Thanksgiving works. It's contagious. It helps others. And, and so, so even right now this morning, at the end of verse uh, point number one, I want to try this a little bit, and I want to ask you the question, how have you seen God work? And, and again, this isn't how have you worked, so, so this isn't the time to say, you know what, I made the most incredible turkey, and it was smoked just right. And everyone loved it. That's great. That's wonderful. God has called us to enjoy the the gifts he's given us in life. But how have you seen God work this year? How has God shown up in your life this year? Let's just take a moment and praise God. Someone want want to share? I know this is cold. I didn't give any any warning. Provided a house in, in Southern California, which is a miracle. Yeah. And you're doing ministry out of that house, which is a wonderful thing. Strength to walk through grief. And and that is something we are praying for you. Our hearts grieve with you. With many of us here this year. But God is still God and God is still working. And so even how he helps you through that helps all of us praise him. Thank you. Healed relationships. Healed relationships. Amen. Which is a miracle again. In a human sense, we don't heal relationships. It's hard. But God has a way of doing that. Health and new life. Maybe not a lot of sleep, but new life. And we celebrate with you. And there's nothing like looking at new life and seeing a miracle of God. Yeah. Gift of God. Amen. Opening the doors with family members to share the gospel. How many of you have family members that don't know Christ? Wow. Keep praying for them. Keep looking for those doors. Hear where God has answered and know that he might do the same thing for you this Christmas, this, this gathering. I'll be looking for that. Anyone else? What has God done? Building new relationships with future family. Amen. And... Um, God has a way of bringing people in our lives and bringing those people around us at just the right time. One more. Providing opportunities to build into the next generation. Um, Yeah. These are things that are like, okay, 
It's not turkey, but it's better than turkey, right? It's lasting. It has a legacy. And these are things that God allows us to see and allows us to do. If Paul was here in that gathering, he'd be like, like a thousand people came to Christ this trip. We, we planted like 10 new churches. And I, 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 those aren't exact numbers. Um, we planted like 10 new churches. And there's elders. And you should see these Ephesian elders. They are taking the baton. And they are leading this church well. And this is so exciting to see. And then I went to Corinth. And there's some healed relationships in Corinth. And I had written a hard letter. And they repented. And they, they now are walking with God. Do you see what Paul might be saying here? And he's excited about what God is doing. And village, this Thanksgiving, let's be excited about all the stuff, but let's be extra excited about what God's doing. That's part of our story. That's part of what we share with others. And we see Paul as an example with the church doing that, coming back from his journey, coming back from a missions journey and sharing that. I wish, I wish that's where the story ended. And that's where the chapter ended. We could just end Acts there and we're good. But there's more to the story. And the story isn't always the greatest or the easiest, but God is still at work, as we talked about in our our summary. And so point number two, as we look at the next section, Paul humbly takes steps to clear up unfair misconceptions about his ministry. Paul humbly takes steps to clear up unfair misconceptions about his ministry. Anyone here ever been misunderstood? I'm sure it's, yeah, rarely happened. We don't misunderstand each other at all. In this case, there's some major misunderstandings, probably with some nefarious background of some people, as we're going to see in in point number three, lying or twisting the truth. But we get to the second half of verse 20, and this is real life. So Paul is praising, the church is praising, there's all kinds of thanksgiving. And then the elders, Paul's done, and in the same meeting, The elder said to him, the second half of verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And so at first, this is like, okay, this is exciting that the gospel hasn't just been going to the ends of the earth. It's been powerfully spreading in Jerusalem, too. And there are thousands of Jews that have accepted Christ. This is this is a praise God moment as well. But they're not done. They are all zealous for the law. They are passionate about the law. They care about the Torah and they care about these things, which is which is all good. But they're going to go to where it's been taken to a, a, a wrong place. Verse 21. And they have been told about you. Always a hard way to start a sentence. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And so there there it is. There's the falsehood. And to us, they're like, oh, that seems like a little thing. To a Jew and to, a, to thousands of Jews who are zealous for the law, this is a major thing. So what they think is, um, if you remember back in Acts 15, we had the Jerusalem Council And the Gentiles didn't have to circumcise their children or be circumcised. They didn't have to come under the law to be Christians. They needed to stay away from immorality. They needed to stay away from sin. But they didn't have to do all of the cultural aspects of Judaism to be Christians, right? Remember that? That was back Acts 15. 
So the, the rumor going around is now people are going and saying, you know what? Paul's not even going by that, that council. He's gone way beyond that. And now he's telling Jews they can't follow the law. And he's telling Jews they're wrong if they get circumcised. That they're wrong if they, they do these things. He is against Jews. He is against Judaism. And Paul shows up in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. And he's about to worship in the temple. And it looks as if with many of them that it's a misunderstanding. But we also know that there were segments that were completely against Paul. And so they now think he's forsaken Moses. He's forsaken the Old Testament. That he has lost his mind and in favor of the Gentiles. Now we know that this isn't true. Paul knew that this wasn't true. I mean, if you read his writings in Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, when he talks about disputable matters, he's like, you, you can do these things as long as they don't subtract from the gospel, as long as they don't add to the gospel. If it's, if it's part of just a, a disputable issue, an issue that, um, isn't essential to salvation, you can still practice that. If the Bible isn't clear about it. And, and he says that both for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And so we know that. We know that Paul on the circumcision issue, he had Timothy go along with him and he had Timothy be circumcised for the sake of ministry. So we know he wasn't against it. Paul himself in chapter 18, we, uh, in one of the last trips, he took a Nazarite vow, which was a, a, Ju- a vow in Judaism of setting yourself apart for God, of purifying yourself for God. We know that even here, Paul was rushing to Jerusalem to make it for Pentecost, the feast, the festival, to worship in the temple. So Paul, he was bending over backwards to follow the law or to follow Judaism, to stay true to to some of, of his background. And so these accusations had to sting because they not only weren't true, they were ridiculously not true. They were obviously not true. And... and and so this is what the, the church mentions to Paul. Hey, this is what's going on. And, and they should mention it to him. If this is what's going on, they need to figure out a way, uh, a plan. And so they come up with a plan that starts in 2023. 20, Here's the plan. Show them it's not true. To show them the truth about you. And so in verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And and so their idea is we have these four men who have taken a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, because part of the Nazarite vow, not only were there things you had to abstain from, like wine or grapes or any of those things. In Sunday school, we talked about that with Bet Shemesh and Samson. But there were things you had to avoid. You also had to let your hair grow. And at the end of your vow, you cut off your hair and you offered it as a sacrifice. And so that was part of the, um, the purification at the end of the vow, the way that you, you set yourself apart for God and give thanks to God for that time with him. But but the problem is that could become a costly thing. Um, in Numbers 6, 14 through 17, it talks about when you end this vow, you also had to make a sacrifice. 
And here's what you had to bring to the temple as you made this vow. You needed to bring a male lamb, an ewe lamb, a ram, together with grain and drink offerings and unleavened bread. So each of the four guys needed to bring that. These were not cheap. You didn't just go catch a stray lamb out in the neighborhood and, and bring it to the temple. These had to be of, of um, without blemish. They had to be ones that were ready to be sacrificed. And so the idea is, Paul, you take them and, and you purify yourself along with them so that way you can go into the temple with them. And, and probably what's going on here historically um, is when someone traveled abroad into Gentile lands, one of the laws was that they had to go through a seven-day purification um, in the temple and go to the mikvahs outside the temple and wash yourself and be purified so you were ready to, to come into the temple to worship and not defile the, the temple. And so this is the plan. Do these things and then pay for those sacrifices for those four men which was something you were allowed to do at the time. Historically, we have, we have records of that. But Paul now, at personal cost, needs to pay for f- sacrifices for four men, purify himself, join in their ending ceremony celebrating this vow. And the idea is this is all, all very much a part of Judaism, not essential for salvation, but not contrary to salvation, Right? If, if you made a vow to fast for a week and set yourself apart for God, I'm not going to come to you and say, you're not saved. How dare you? That is sin. No, no. It, it's fine to do that. It's setting themselves apart for God. It's consistent with his faith. And so this was their idea because they said, if people see that, it's even more obvious you're not against Judaism. It's even more obvious you're not against Moses. So that'll work, right? So we get to 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That refers back to Acts 15, okay? It's just a summary of Acts 15. And I think what the church leaders are doing is, Paul, why don't you join with this, this vow and help them purify themselves from their vow? But we're not saying the Gentiles have to all do this. And so, yes, we sent the letter. We remember we sent the letter. Um, they can, can follow Christ, and they can follow Christ how they're doing it. Just stay away from sin. And so we have, through 25, this idea. Seems like a good idea. So in verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each of them. And so there was a problem, misconceptions about his ministry. It would lead people, Jews in Jerusalem, to not listen to Paul, to look down on Paul. And so it it threatened to be a division among Christians in the church. And so this was the plan. And Paul did it. And Paul went along with it. And I think of 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 9.20, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, because he's saved, that I might win those under the law. And so this is entirely consistent with Paul's idea of all things for all men for the sake of the gospel. 
And as long as it's not sin, as, not, as long as it's not crossing that line, he's, gonna, he's going to put himself aside as secondary and do whatever it takes to reach someone for the gospel. In this case, or for church unity. Now, isn't that a great example? What if we put aside all of our own preferences? What if we put aside all of our own convictions of how everyone else should live other than sin issues? And so, so understand that on, 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 um, issues that are not sin issues. What if we were able to put aside our own desires for the sake of sharing the gospel with someone? For the sake of church unity. So many times issues of church unity are because we are demanding our rights or demanding our way and not listening to each other and not caring about each other. Now, yes, I know that there are churches that have split over doctrinal issues that are clear and, and first order issues, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about splitting over things like paint color or whether or not we, we have certain things at certain times or it could be a whole variety of things. Churches have split over um, issues of homeschooling versus public schooling. Vaccine or no vaccine. And these are just silly to, to divide and, and threaten church unity over. And Paul was willing to do all things for all men for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to spend money on sacrifices He's willing to go through a purification process that he didn't have to go through for the sake of ministering to the church at Jerusalem, for the sake of unity there. And so this is a great plan. Paul agrees to it. Everyone sees and knows that he's, they've been wrong about him and we all live happily ever after. Unfortunately, even the most well-intentioned plans don't always work out right? Because we live in a fallen world and we live in a sinful world and we ourselves are fallen and we ourselves are sinful. And so in this case, these well-intentioned plans didn't work out as we're going to see in the next section. And they didn't work out because Satan was actively opposing and stirring up people to actively oppose. Point number three in your notes. Sometimes even our best efforts to minister and clear things up still result in false accusations and trouble. Sometimes even best efforts to minister and clear things up still result in false accusations and trouble. Have any of you ever been falsely accused of something? Few people. How's it feel? There's a betrayal, right? There's a helplessness. It feels like somebody is almost abusing you emotionally because these false accusations are going around. And here, the false accusations get amplified and directly affect Paul's ministry. And so he comes to Jerusalem sharing about effectiveness in ministry, sharing what God has done. He gives an honest effort to clear up the misconception. And we end up with some coming and lying and stirring up a mob against Paul. Direct opposition through lies and false accusations. And so we come to verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, so he's done the purification, they're about to do the sacrifices, we're at the end of that time, the Jews from Asia 
seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. What? What is going on? He's done everything right. This doesn't make sense. Jews from Asia, that's the, the Asia Minor, the churches that he was just at. These are probably not believing Jews. In the last section, they were believing Jews in the church that were listening to some of the misconception. Here, it looks like the same troublemakers from Ephesus, probably, or from some of the other churches. Remember, it's the Feast of Pentecost, so all the Jews would be coming to Jerusalem, or many of them would be coming to Jerusalem. And so, especially with what's coming, that is why we think these are, are people he saw in Ephesus, but he could have seen them in some other places. They saw him in the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Their anger was there. They wanted to stop his message. They wanted to stop his work. Maybe they were zealous like he was before he encountered Christ. But they wanted to stop him. And so in verse 28, they were crying out, Men of Israel, help! Help! This is a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. So the first accusation is he's teaching everyone everywhere. That's a, that's a trick. Against the people, the Jews, the law, the Torah, and this place, the temple. And so these are very, very serious accusations. He's against Jews who you're in the temple with all Jews that are very much proud of their ancestry that's, that's part of who they are. He's against Jews. He's against the law, which is what they, they memorize as a child and they live by, those that, that don't know Christ. And this place, as they're in the temple, it would be like if we all come together to worship and I point someone out and I say, Phil hates Christians. He hates the Bible and he really hates village. Let's welcome him. No, right? It, it, he doesn't. So know that those that don't know Phil, none of those things are true. I'm not starting false accusations. But if someone was actually making those accusations against, against Phil, he'd be very upset. He'd be hurt. Um, and if someone was persuasive and dynamic in their speech, maybe they could turn, we could turn everyone against Phil. And we could say, you know what? The penalty for this is death. Let's get them. We have a big gym. A little circle in the middle, put them there, get some rocks. That's what's happening here. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> We're not doing it. Then they went further in their accusation. He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, which is why we think they were from Ephesus probably. They recognized a guy from Ephesus. And they're like, we know him. He's not a Jew. Paul brought him into the temple. He's defiled the temple. He's defiled this holy place. And so they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, now some history here. I don't know if we have a, the next picture. This is a, a, a model. This is actually the, the Jerusalem model of the temple complex as it would have been in the life of Christ. 
And so um, Herod built this temple mount, so that way there was a larger area. And you had the court of Gentiles here and here. That was the place where Gentiles could come to worship. And that, that was where probably the tables that Jesus overturned, because they had overtaken the area that was supposed to be reaching the world with uh, commerce and things like that. And then in here you had the court of women. And you went through these gates to the court of women. Now the court of women, and, and then you had the, the temple beyond that, those were places that only Jews could go. And so the Gentiles could go out in the court of Gentiles. Only Jews could enter the complex itself. In fact, you see these fences here? Those fences, and they've actually, I love it when they uncover stuff, and they were like, that's true. Those fences were the boundary line, and you could not bring a Gentile, or a Gentile could not go beyond them. In fact, there were um, signs there that would, would say the penalty is death. The penalty is death. One of the signs said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Okay, so this is serious, right? So the accusation on Paul, who's there for purification, who isn't going to defile the temple because he's there for purification, the accusation is, you brought Trophimus into here, court of women, probably a little bit further to worship, and so you have defiled the temple of the Most High God the, the consequence is death. The Romans would let the, the Jewish authorities kill people over this one. You didn't have to go to a trial or anything. You could just take them out. And so they chose something, I think intentionally, that had a death penalty to stop Paul's ministry. This is serious. Now, do you, do you see another problem with what they said in verse 29? Their logic is incredibly flawed. Their logic is this. We saw you earlier in the week in town with Trophimus, so you must have brought him into the temple. You are bad. We kill you. This is their logic. And, and this, is, this is so silly. It would be like if I say, I saw you driving on Trask by a car dealer. Can we go look at your new car? No, no, A doesn't equal B. Or if we want to put it in a more negative sense, like they're using it, I might say, you know what? I saw you at Starbucks earlier this week. That must mean you're an alcoholic and you needed the coffee to get over the alcohol. And so we need to discipline you. What's wrong with these pictures? They make no sense. They make no sense. I, I've had accusations of, of, of things about not being willing to listen to things in the church and everything was so opposite that. And it's just so crazy the accusations that are made when someone is trying to stop the work of God. And so there are these trumped up charges of, uh, that, that the, they're stirring people up. In verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And so these Jews from Asia, from Ephesus and some of the other churches possibly, we don't know exactly, they come, they lie about these things, they lie about bringing a Gentile in, they say it's time to take care of business here, they drag him out, and all the people are stirred up and start to join in. Now, now again, history helps us here. 
because there is a growing anti-Roman that was turning into anti-Gentile sentiment. So at this point, the Romans were hated more and more. We're getting close to Nero. We're getting close to, to Jerusalem falling. And so these issues are, this hatred towards Rome is rising. And how that started coming out was a hatred toward Gentiles. And so now, when, when these Jews come along and, and make these accusations of Paul, that he hates Jews, loves Gentiles, he's defiling the temple with Gentiles, people are all too ready to hear it without even considering if it was true. Sort of how we work sometimes. You ever read anything on Twitter? This is Twitter in real life. And so they stir people up. People run together. They seize Paul, drag him out of the temple. And probably by that, they mean the temple complex here. And they drag him out these gates and they shut these gates behind them because you don't want the defiler back in. And, and so they, they kick him out. A number of commentaries made an interesting statement that the temple is actually never seen as a place of worship in the rest of the New Testament again. And so they view the closing of the gates as symbolic of Christian worship, rather. I, I don't know. That, that's a little bit of a stretch for me. But it's interesting that the authors don't go there anymore. And so they, they run him out of the temple, verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Okay, so they are seeking to kill him. This is not... Just, oh, let's, let's torture him a little bit. Oh, let's give him a reprimand. This mob is looking to kill Paul because they are convinced he has defiled the temple. No proof. Didn't bother to get it. But hey, we're zealous for this. And so they're in these outer courts and the, the, the Roman um, tribe, the, the head of the Roman cohort there hears of this. Cohort could be around a thousand soldiers. We don't know for sure. But what's interesting is in this picture, do you see this here? This is the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, just outside. This is called the Fortress of Antonia. This is where the Romans were garrisoned. And you're talking walls um, 50, 60 feet high, towers 75 feet high. They think maybe one of the towers was as much as 100 feet high. You don't see that in this model. And you had this rampart here that they could walk along. What are they able to see? The court of Gentiles, the temple complex. The, the Romans are there to keep peace. That's their, their job. Most disturbances happened on the temple mount, just like today. And, um, and so they are there to keep the peace. There's actually a staircase that leads down from their barracks down into the court of Gentiles so they had direct access. So that's, that's just sort of fun, pictures with Ron. Um, word came to the tribune of the cohort, the, the leader there, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And so that ends point number three. Sometimes even our best efforts to minister and clear things up still result in false accusations and trouble. Because Satan is alive and active and trying to stop the work of God. As I think of this one, this, 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 is, this is sort of the depressing point for me in today's passage. So Paul ministered well. He tried to clear things up well, and it all blew up in his face. 
But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, that's okay. It's what we should expect in a fallen world. If we are making inroads, if we're making incursions into the kingdom of Satan, it's what we should expect. Because Satan will oppose God's work. And so our challenge is to do the right thing anyway. Trust that God knows what's going on. And in the end, he will use it for his glory and our good. When things turn sideways and we don't understand how it happened, God knows. And God will turn that for his good. This is Romans 8, 28. And it's a, it's a, a beautiful verse that sometimes is taken out of context. So sometimes we, we lose the power of it. But it's a beautiful verse in the context of that God is working salvation, that God is working in the lives of his people, that God's love can never be, be lost. This is the verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And it doesn't say all things work together and how I planned them or how all things work together, how I think it's good. But it says God is working out all things for his good, for our good, and his glory. Because he has a purpose. And so I, as I was thinking through this text, and I was thinking through what happened to Paul, and, and the unfair treatment, and, and we actually haven't heard from Paul yet. We're, we will next week. I kept thinking of this verse. What's God doing here? How's God going to turn this? This seems like Paul's done, but he's not. Because even if we don't think things work out, we trust God and know he will. And so we come to the last verses, and these aren't going to resolve this week. The the whole rest of Acts is the resolution to this. This is is Act 3 or Act 4, whatever you want to call it. But point number four, Paul is arrested and carried off because of the false mob action but God is still at work. Paul is arrested and carried off because of the false mob action, but God is still at work. We've seen Paul's Thanksgiving struggle because of misunderstandings. We've seen it it struggle because of false accusations. And now we see his Thanksgiving and, and how he came struggle because of unfair circumstances, just wrong circumstances. Verse 32. He at once the head of the soldiers there, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, down the stairs, into the the courtyard. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I love that that statement. Now, Now, keep in mind, this is a lot of soldiers. Did you catch what's said about centurion? Centurions, right? Each centurion had 100 soldiers with them. So plural centurions, there's at least two, at least 200 Roman soldiers come down and flood the courtyard. Again, they don't care about laws of Judaism. They care about keeping the peace. And so they flood this place. And at at that point, as soon as the people beating Paul, the crowd and and maybe some of the people from Ephesus, although they they conveniently disappear, it looks like, um, all of a sudden people stop when there's 200 soldiers there that are, it's like, oh, not me. No, no, we weren't doing anything, nothing to see here. And so they just stop and back off. It's really interesting. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He doesn't know at this point who's, who's telling the truth. Actually, he hasn't even heard the other side. 
He just knows this man's being accused or apparently accused of, of defiling the temple. So he orders him to be bound with two chains. The meaning there is probably two, two guards, one on each side, bound by hands, maybe by feet. Do you remember the prophecy last week? That he'd be bound, he'd go to Jerusalem and be bound. It is fulfilled. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So the, um, the tribune arrests him, gets him out of harm's way. Understand, this is a circumstance that th- seems awful, but it saved Paul's life. There's no question that they would have continued and killed him. And so the tribune, by arresting him, saved his life. And sometimes our circumstances are God saving us from things that we don't understand. And we get so upset about some of our circumstances when God was actually using it for our good and his glory. And so he's put into chains. The tribune inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd, this is great, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. The crowd didn't even know why they were beating him. They didn't know why they were killing him. They just were built into a frenzy by these lies and these false accusations and mob rule. Others join in and they're like, let's do this. And they couldn't give an answer. They didn't have an answer. And so the tribune here says, let's bring him to the barracks. Let's, let's get him away from the crowd. Let's figure out what's going on. When he came to the steps, those steps that are leading up to the, the fortress of Antonia, when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Isn't that interesting? Now, also in chains, that's probably hard, but the crowd's pressing in. They want to kill him. They're still violent. And as they're trying to make their way through, they couldn't do it. So the soldiers pick Paul up and they carry him away. Maybe the end of his ministry or maybe God's saving his life and doing something more. I'm going with the second one. Verse 36, for the mob of the people followed crying away with him, away with him. This is not saying just take him on a little walk. The wording for away with him here means take him away to be killed. Take him away to his death. This same wording was used by Luke in Luke 23, 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And when Pilate brought out Barabbas and Jesus and said, I can, I can free one of them. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong that I can see. And they said, away with him to his death, give us Barabbas. And so this is Luke saying, they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him, in a sense. Kill him, kill him. But this saved Paul's life. And as we're going to see next week with what Paul does with this is that God is still at work. God was still at work to save Paul. God is still at work to still give him a voice. God is at work getting him to Rome, which is where he promised he would preach the gospel someday. God is still at work. And so this is a text that maybe doesn't have a satisfying ending today. Come next week. See what God's going to keep doing. But it's a text that starts out with praise and thanksgiving. 
it starts out great with all these, these great things that God is doing. And then Satan steps in and through misconceptions tries to stop the work. Through lies and false accusation tries to stop the work. Through circumstances that were certainly not fair tries to stop the work. But God is still at work. And God is protecting Paul. And God is giving him a platform unlike any other platform he has ever had for the gospel. Come next week. We'll talk about that. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, we read about Paul and we read about what is is going on. And Lord, it's great to understand the history, but I pray that you would challenge us with whatever circumstances we're going through to still give thanks to you, to still look to you because you are enough and to see how you are working. Because Lord, when we stop looking for how you're working, we stop believing that you are working, but you are. In the lives of your, your sons and your daughters, you are at work. And so, Lord, whatever, whatever circumstances we might be in, help us to be looking for what you're doing and how we can still give thanks to you and praise you. Lord, in this case, thank you for an arrest. Thank you for chains. Thank you for carrying Paul off, for saving his life so he can reach a whole nother segment for you. Lord, help us to be that aware that we look past our frustrations, we look past our trials, we look past our tears, and we say, I know my God is at work. I know that he is using this for my ultimate good and for his glory. And so, Lord, may we follow Paul's example as we come next week and hear him share. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for the beginning of Advent, for the hope that a Savior brings. Because of that hope, because of that Savior, we have confidence to trust you. Lord, help us to trust you in every part of our lives. In your name.